0: Alright, so we are continuing our series through the Gospel of Luke. Um, we're kind of coming to a place now, Jesus has been doing all this stuff, and His disciples are beginning to wonder, who is this guy? Who is this guy that's in our midst? So he's doing all this stuff that no one else does, and uh, they're really beginning to question, who, who is this Jesus? Who is this guy? Is he really just a good teacher? Is he really just a prophet? Who is he? And so that's what we're going to be looking at uh, this morning. And you know, I think we have these questions throughout our whole life. Who is Jesus? That's a question we have to continually be asking ourselves. Um, so I'm going to read the text now, and then we will talk about this. So Luke eight twenty-two to 39. This is what it says. It says, one day Jesus said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side of the lake. So they got in the boat and set out. As they sailed he fell asleep a squall came down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped and they were in great danger the disciples went and woke him saying master master we're going to drown said exclamation point he got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waters the storm subsided and all was calm where is your faith he asked his disciples in fear and amazement they asked one another who is this he commands even the winds and the water and they obey him Then they sailed to the region of the Gerasenes, which is across the lake from Galilee. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, don't torture me! Exclamation point. For Jesus had commanded uh, the evil spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. Jesus asked him, What is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had got into him. And they begged him repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into them, and he gave them permission. When the demons came out of the, uh, when the, demons came out of the man, uh, they went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. When those tending the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off and reported this uh, in the town and countryside. And the people went out to see what had happened. So the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. I love the Bible. Great stories. Great things that are happening. Uh, let's pray together. Father, we, uh, we come into your presence now and we ask that you teach us, speak to us through your word. Lord, give me your spirit. Uh, give me your mercy. Um, I need you, desperate for you. And I ask that you'd open our hearts to you. Uh, that you would meet us where we're at and um, help us to see Jesus. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. So, as I was looking at this text, a couple of questions came up. I was talking to Nate also. A couple of questions are Is God powerful? Is He really powerful? And does He really care? Uh. Like, is God really powerful? Does he really hold the universe together? And does he really care about our little lives? Does he really care about my little life? Does he really see what I'm doing? Um, And, you know, the questions revolving around the power and intimate care by which God deals with us is a question I think we often have. You know, for example, recently my parents know this. Some of you, I've been kind of walking through some serious doubts of depression and or bouts <laughs> with depression. I know I got it, and uh, and so that's been happening. And you know, in the midst of all that, you're just like, ah, uh, you feel like nine million pounds, and I'm sure some of you have felt like that. And in the midst of that, it's like, gosh, is God powerful? Can He really do anything about this? Why is this happening? And does He care? Does he actually care that this is happening or is this kind of like some game? And, uh, you know, maybe some of you have the same thing. You know, some of you are dealing with difficult situations in your life uh, with at work or with your boss or co-workers or some of you are wondering where the next paycheck is going to come from. You know, the economy stinks and you're wondering, you know, is God powerful? Can he really provide for me? Does he really care about me, about my family? Um, and, you know, for others, some of you are so weighed down with with guilt, with shame for things that you have done for things that you haven't done that you feel like maybe you've uh, used up all of God's love for all of his grace and he's done with you that he's just like, alright, enough, enough's enough I've given you enough chances, you're done and uh, you know it's in times like that when we wonder is God, uh, is he powerful and does he really care does he really care about those things does he really care about our doubts, our fears, all that stuff and But I think the thing is, it's difficult you know, to trust in the power and in the care of, of God's tender care when life seems out of control, when life seems hopeless, when there's things going on that you have no idea why that's happening. And if you wrestle with these questions, I just want you to know that you're in good company. The disciples, Jesus' guys who walked with Him face to face, had the same questions, <laughs> the same doubts, the same concerns. And so the problem is not with God or with Christ, it's with people like us, people who struggle, who doubt, who wrestle with things. And so this morning, I just want to look at two questions and try and answer them, really basic. Is God powerful, and does God care? So first I want to look at uh, the question, is God powerful? And uh, we'll, we'll answer this by looking at verses 22 to 25, where Jesus is calming a storm. And I want to I set the picture for you here. I like doing this, kind of setting the stage. So here's what's happening. Uh, Jesus gets in a boat with his disciples. want to go on a little trip, uh, you know, in the boat, hang out with his disciples. They get in the lake, go to the lake. Um, so the commentators say this is the Lake of Gennesaret, which is also the Sea of Galilee. So when you see those terms in the Bible, they're the same thing. And uh, this sea was 700 feet below sea level surrounded by mountains, and what would happen is the, the cold winds would whip down and meet with the warm winds, and something would happen, and there would be lots of storms, <laughs> and uh, I don't know weather stuff that well, but that's what happened, and so this this sea was known as a place that would just whip up huge storms, huge waves, and lots of shipwrecks, and that kind of thing. Um, so this is where they're going and it says, you know, they head out and in verse 23, uh, Luke Luke notes that Jesus fell asleep, which makes sense. Jesus has been teaching, he's a man, he's exhausted, he's tired, he's been helping people. You know, if you're someone who's helping people all day long, you're whooped at the end of the day. So he's tired, wants to catch some ease. So he's sleeping. Um, well, the waves begin to pick up, the boat begins to rock and the disciples start panicking. Uh, Look in verse 23. Luke notes that the boat begins to fill with water. So this isn't some, like, dinky storm. This is deadliest catch, saying our prayers, we're going to die. This is scary stuff. Peter's running around like, ah! Just freaked out. The disciples are screaming like 12-year-old girls. And they look at Jesus, and he's just in dreamland. They look at him, and he's got, you know, maybe he's got this little grin on his face, just completely at peace. He's sleeping. And, you know, so what... Can you imagine the disciples looking at Jesus? Here they are. They're freaking out, screaming, running around. And Jesus is just sleeping. So what are they thinking? What are they thinking of Jesus? They're thinking, this isn't how it's supposed to go. We get in this lake with Jesus who's done all this cool stuff and we're about to die. This is what I signed up for. And I know that none of us have ever felt like that. Right? Right? where life seems just out of control, chaos, you don't know what's going on, and you wonder, Jesus, what? what's the deal with this? What's, is this really how the world's supposed to go? You know, you're in the midst of troubles, chaos, hopelessness, and you look at God and it feels like he's sleeping. It's like he went on a vacation. You're like, hey, come back, what's, what's going on? It's like the do not disturb sign. And... uh You know, I have felt like this where God feels or it seems like he's oblivious to your troubles, oblivious to your pain, oblivious to your situation in which you feel like you're suffocating under the pressures of life. And I know we've never felt like this. Um, We might say, you know, oh God, we trust you, your will be done in the midst of that. But inside our hearts are screaming for relief, battered and bruised from the troubles and unanswered prayers. Right? It's all over the Bible you see this, where God's people would draw near with their mouth, but their hearts were far from them. Um, but I want to look at what, the, what these disciples do in verse 24. Uh, look at this. It says, And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we're perishing! So out of complete desperation, the disciples run to Jesus and start yelling at him. Exclamation point. Whenever you see in the Bible two words back to back, that's for emphasis. Master, Master, we're perishing. Wake up. What are you doing? Why are you sleeping? We're dying. Don't you care? And, uh, you know, if you've ever uh, been in a situation like that where it seems like life is just swallowing you up, I mean, you feel like you're suffocating and you can't get any relief. And what happens is you, you cry out to God, you cry out to God, you cry out to God. Nothing happens, and so you begin to feel numb towards him, and you begin to start depending on yourself, because it seems useless to talk to him, right? Am I the only one here? I hope not. I've done this, you know, I still do. Um, you know, it's hard to continue commuting with him when you feel like you're getting a stiff arm, when you feel like uh, he's asleep. You know, have you ever tried to talk to someone who you know is not paying attention to you? You're talking to them. they have got the, kind of the glazed look over their eyes. They're kind of looking around. You know they're not listening to you. You know they're not paying attention. And you're just like, whatever. This is dumb. I don't want to talk to this person anymore. You know, in our house, I, Kristen's a night owl. So I, uh, I often go to sleep first. And uh, Kristen will come into the room sometimes and start talking to me. And I'm just like, gone. I mean, I'm just asleep. And so she'll talk. She'd she'll be talking to me, and she doesn't realize I'm asleep. And then she'll look at me, and like, kind of nudge me, and I don't move. I'm like, a log. And, uh, you know, she'll just laugh, and she's like, I'm out of here. You know, at least. What's the point of talking to someone who's asleep? And I think that a lot of us, you know, I do this. I feel like, uh, you know, you talk to God, and sometimes you just laugh. What is the point? Nothing's happening. And you just... Kind of leave, and I want you to know that this is this is something that God's people have dealt with for a long time. I want to share with you David some of the things that he said. He, David's a man after God's own heart, and listen to the uh, the honesty in which David prays. This is from Psalm 31. He says, "Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression?" Psalm 35, David writes, You have seen, O Lord, be not silent. O Lord, be not far from me. These all have exclamation points, so I'm just reading it how he wrote. Awake and rouse yourself for my vindication, for my cause and my God and my Lord. Psalm 44. Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? And there's more and more and more examples of this where throughout the Psalter, God's people are just crying out to God. Why are you asleep? Wake up! Don't you see what's happening? You're my God, aren't you? And this deep wrestling. Now, could it be that the Lord uses silence, unanswered prayer, loneliness, and struggle to draw us to Himself? Because you run out of options. You're completely out of options. When everything's falling apart and nothing's happening, you just go to Him and you're pleading. Um... And I just want to ask you, if you are someone who's in the midst of you know, a difficult situation or something where life is just too much, have you run to him and, and told him your struggle? Have you pleaded your case before him and poured out your heart to him? And let me just tell you that he will not cast you out. Uh, he loves to work in silence where you least expect it. He loves when you go to him and you pour out your heart to him, when you tell him what's really going on. And listen to this, your difficulties and dead ends are actually a doorway into his presence. They're not wasted. All of your heartaches, your losses, are not wasted in God's economy, but are pathways into his strong, powerful, tender arms. But still, how could Jesus be sleeping? How could he be sleeping? Uh, The only way that Jesus could be sleeping in the midst of the storm is if he knows something that we don't. And this is what I think Jesus knows. Jesus knows who he is. Look at at the end of verse 23. It says, And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they uh, ceased, and they were calm. So Jesus is not afraid of the waves, because he made the waves. And the waves listened to his voice. Jesus is not questioning questioning, and wavering in his self-understanding that he, in fact, is Lord of the universe, God incarnate, who spoke the waves and the wind into existence by the mere power of his word. No, the disciples are wavering and doubting and wrestling and failing to understand who it is that is in their midst. So the problem is not with God. The problem is with us. The problem is with me and in my unbelief, in my struggles. Um, now, when Jesus... Uh, tells the waves, Silence! Do you think the disciples are less afraid or more afraid than they were uh, when the seas were raging? I mean, can you picture Peter? He's, he's now it's calm. He's like, oh, Alright. Um, and he goes to one of the disciples and he's like, Did, it, did you see that too? Did that really just happen? How did it just go from Deadliest Catch to Lake Padden in, in like a split second? How did that happen? You know, now the disciples are safe from the waves, but are not safe from the stinging rebuke of the Lord of the universe. Jesus says to them in verse 25, Where is your faith? Can you imagine this? You're just like, you're fighting for your life, saying your last words, dreaming of your family, whatever. And now you're safe, and you're like, "Huh." Oh. And he get rebuked by the one who made the waves. It's not very comforting. Um, and it says that uh, they were afraid and they marvelled, saying to one another, "Who then is this that he commands even winds and water and they obey him? Who is this Jesus? Who is this guy?" Uh, There are other places in the Bible that help us understand what's going on here. In Psalm 107, this is about some other sailors. It says, They mounted up to heaven, they went down to the depths, their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and He delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. This is talking about the Lord. God. In Psalm 89, uh, it says this, O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you. You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. Could this Jesus be the Lord God of hosts? Could he be the God who is before all things and spoke all things into existence? Is he powerful? What do you think? You know, this Jesus is the one who calls us to trust him with our very lives. And you know, faith is tried in the midst of pressure, confusion, loss of control. What, I mean, what are we going to turn to? But Jesus calls us to trust in His ability to care for us when life seems impossible. So some of you might be thinking, "Ah, oh, that's awesome! Jesus like talks to waves, and they listen, and like, and, and they go down. Uh, but so He's powerful, but does He care?" Does he actually care about our little lives? Does he actually care uh, and want to meet with us in our mess, in our confusion, um, in our pain? Well, let's find out. I want to look at uh, the second part of this passage. I'm not going to go through every little verse here. It's kind of a long chunk. But this is where Jesus meets a demoniac. Um, now, let me refresh, uh, refresh you guys where, what's going on here. So after calming the storm, Jesus and his disciples they sail to the country of the Gerasenes, and the this is kind of an interesting note. The Gerasenes is a Gentile country; it's a non-Jewish place, and this is kind of significant in the first century. You know, in the first century, there is this strong distinction between Jews and Gentiles, and Jews would often think as of the Gentiles as unclean, filthy dogs. Uh, they're outside of Israel; they're uh, no good. There's actually one law that says if. Uh, you know, if a Pharisee or whatever sees a Jew drowning, it's better to let the uh, Gentile drown so you don't get his dirtiness and cleanness on you. And this is a completely not what the Old Testament teaches. God's people were called out of the world to be a blessing to their neighbors and to reflect His glory and His mercy to those around them. So this is a complete distortion. Um, and, uh, and here is Jesus in a Gentile territory. About to step off a boat and make contact with the most unclean person you could think of. Uh, Look at verse 27 uh, with me. It says, When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn not clothes, and he had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. So Jesus meets this guy who's running around naked his whole life, uh, living in a graveyard, uh, shrieking out curses, completely tormented. You know, this is not the type of guy you want to invite to your birthday party. This is not the type of guy you make eye contact with when you're walking down the street. If you're walking down the sidewalk, you know, he's coming at you, you're like, oh, yeah, I was going over here anyways. And walk over here. You don't want to brush up against this guy. You know, the moms are hesitant to let their kids play wiffle ball in the cul-de-sac for fear this guy's going to run in the outfield, shrieking and yelling curses. This guy is, uh, you know, they don't, want, don't want scare little Johnny. And this is not someone you want to associate with, right? Uh, this naked demoniac is a complete reject to society. Nobody wants him. He's a menace to society. Uh, He's kept in shackles. Um, This guy is completely out of his mind. And so what happens? Is Jesus going to obliterate this demon-possessed psycho? Is that what's going to happen? No. See, Jesus is someone who sympathizes with us in our weaknesses. He understands people. He understands how deep the curse has gone into humanity and the dehumanizing effects of sin and the devil, and all that stuff, Jesus understands that. And, um, you know, often in the Bible, Jesus will see someone who most other people reject, and He'll make eye contact with them, and actually look at them. And for many, this will be the first time they've ever been looked at in the eyes. That's a pretty powerful thing. And I think what Jesus understands, is He understands that this guy's been tormented physically, psychologically, and emotionally. So I want to look at that. Physically, this man's naked, Right near the water. Now, when you're near the water, you know it's colder than other places, right? The breeze and the, the cool. So he's probably freezing, That's what I'm thinking. He's hiding in the graveyard. He's got blood and scabs all over his wrists from the shackles, ripping them out of the ground, and just, it's gross, you know? He's, he's hurting, he's in pain constantly. But also, psychologically. This It says this guy was tormented by a legion of demons. Now, a legion is a military term, a Roman legion with 6,000 soldiers. Now some commentators, we don't know how many demons this guy had or whatever, um, but can you imagine 6,000 demons? 6,000 voices in your head? Just, you are worthless, you are stupid, you are dumb, go to the blah, 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 blah. It's crazy. It kind of reminds me in uh, Matrix 3. I know it's not a popular movie. But Matrix 3, when Neo goes into the uh, architect, the room of the architect, and there's those monitors. Do you remember this? And uh, all these faces, and it's Neo everywhere. And what he's seeing on the monitors is what's going on in his head. It's completely freaky. And that's what's going on in this guy constantly. These lies whispering again and again and again. And it's completely physically exhausting. To have those thoughts going through your head. There's no stop button. Continuous, continuous, continuous. Also, emotionally. You know, this guy's completely isolated and shunned by society. You know, and says the demons would also drive him into the desert in verse 29, which is exactly what demons do. They isolate. They always isolate. Draw you away from the church, away from community, away from fellowship to go figure out your issues, your problems, everything on yourself, on your own. Jesus is exact opposite. He draws all sorts of people together into a community like this to deal with one another, to talk with one another, to be with one another, to be loved by one another. And uh, so this guy is just completely you know, suffering. And so Jesus has compassion on this guy. So he casts out the demons, which is no big deal for Jesus. Demons are nothing in Jesus' sight. He just says a word, boom, they're gone. Um, And the demons go into a herd of pigs. Now, the demons go into the pigs... And I bet those are some scary-looking pigs. And I wonder if, like, warthogs are just always possessed. I don't know. But uh, the pigs run into the water and die from drowning. Sad, right? So some people get hung up here. These poor little pigs, right? They're, you know, eating the slop, talking to spiders, doing their thing. And... uh, Just basking in the sunshine, eating, and then all of a sudden, boom, they're demon-possessed. They run into the water and they're dead. It's kind of weird. Um, I just want to say a couple things about this. Number one, Jesus has better better ethics than we do. Let's just put it at that. He has better ethics than we do. Um, He is willing that these pigs die so that this man who bears the image of God would be set free. Jesus cares more about a person than he does an animal. We know this in Luke 12. He loves animals, but in Luke 12 it says, you know, you are more important than many sparrows. So Jesus cares about people who bear his image even more than this herd of pigs. And one commentator notes, I think this is really interesting. He says, the freeing of the neighborhood from the peril and terror of this wild maniac was a greater benefit to the whole city than the loss of this herd. So the herd dies. And this man is set free to be truly human. The kids come out and play football again. No guys streaking by, yelling obscenities. And uh, this is what Jesus does, though. Whenever he heals someone and casts out demons, whatever it is, it's not just for the sake of that person, but for the sake of the entire community around. Jesus cared about this country of the Gerasenes, this Gentile country that the gospel did not go to. So he heals this guy for the sake of the entire neighborhood, for the sake of that entire region. That's how much God cares about uh, the world. And so what happens to this guy who's demon-possessed? Well, look at verse 35. It says, Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. So this is quite a difference than before, right? The guy was naked, now he's clothed. He was uh, crazy, going nuts, demons, now he's in his right mind. This is what Jesus does. And let me tell you that relationship to Jesus brings security. That's really the only thing that does bring security, is relationship to Jesus, knowing him. You know, this naked, demon-possessed tomb raider meets Jesus and is now clothed in his right mind, sitting at the feet of Jesus, spending time with him. And what, is, what happens? The herdsmen come out. They're amazed, but they miss out on the greatest opportunity they'll ever have in their lives. They have seen with their own eyes the evidence of the incredible working of God through Jesus in healing this demon-possessed man and bringing peace to this entire region. A Huge. I mean, what a opportunity. And they tell him to leave. They say, go. They miss out on the greatest opportunity of their lives. Um... And, uh, but Jesus has one thing left to do the man asks and even begs Jesus to go with him but Jesus says no and tells him in verse 39 return to your home and declare how much God has done for you so this guy was a nobody, a reject uh, and Jesus saves him and then brings him into his father's rescue mission to seek and save the lost by telling people what God did for him it's not rocket science this guy is going to go around to his neighbors and say hey I had a bunch of demons life was terrible Uh, and I I was naked I lived in tombs and then Jesus came and set me free and I love him and he changed my life and no one else could do that, only Jesus and so that's what he does, (laughs) so Jesus commissions them to go out and see this is what we gotta get uh, Jesus doesn't just save us and give us a free ticket to heaven Uh, he saves us so that we might be might tell others what he has done for us he saves us and then scatters us to tell people what he did for us and it's not hard. <laughs> you don't have to have a PhD. Uh, you just talk. This is what God did, and uh, you know. So this is, and with conversion brings the responsibility of evangelism, and that's just true. Um, and for some of us, that we might feel guilty, and so here's what I want to say: our assurance uh, that God is with us and He loves us is not based on how well we are how good we are at talking to people and that sort of thing. Our assurance uh, is, rests on Jesus' performance for us. Uh, Jesus was the one who suffered physically, psychologically, and emotionally for us. He suffered physically by being brutally flogged and nailed to a dirty cross. He suffered psychologically by being tempted by the devil 40 days and 40 nights. He, he suffered emotionally on the cross by being ridiculed and rejected by men and suffering the emotional loss by being shunned by his own father. When his father turned his back on him, as Jesus took all of our shame, all of our guilt on himself, that we might become truly human through death, through his death on the cross. So Jesus was isolated, he was mocked, uh, he was scorned so that we might gain safety from the power of God's wrath against sin, and that we might be set free from bondage to serve him and love him with abandon. So this is actually good news. God gives us a mission, but he's already secured our inheritance. He's already declared that we are His. And so now we as a community get to go out and share the good news with people through word and deed. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we thank You for Your grace. We thank You that You are powerful. We thank You that You do care. Lord, forgive us for uh, the times when we doubt that. Forgive me for my own unbelief and believing that all the time. And Father, we're, we, are, we do acknowledge that You are powerful, that You do care. And so we pray that You continue to meet us where we're at.